Hi, and welcome to another Kirky Free Sermons podcast. We hope that our sermons help you further your understanding of the Word of God and guide you into your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether you're tuning in on podcast or radio, we're glad that you're here today. Let's jump into this week's message. Last week, we finished up the book of Jonah, and so it's been my intention for us to get back into the Gospel of Mark. And so if you would grab your Bible and you can find the Gospel of Mark. And the place that we left off was chapter 11. So Mark 11 this morning. Just as a reminder, the Gospel of Mark is unique in, in that it is one of the, well, it is the shortest of the Gospels. Oftentimes that means it's the first when people take the Bible into new languages and they begin translating it, they often start with the Gospel of Mark because it's the easiest to get into someone's language and for people to know the story. But it's not just about Jesus' story. It's also about what it means to follow him. It's about discipleship. And so we're going to continue on in the journey uh, that Mark has us on. And we are in chapter 11, and I am beginning with verse 27. Would you stand with me? Let's read this little part here together. It says here, And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You can be seated. Heavenly Father, I just want to ask for your help. I want to pray that your spirit would bring your word to life to us as we listen to it, as we read it, as we receive it today. Lord, may the the forces of evil, the spiritual darkness that is around us and that confronts us, and tempts us, I pray that we not hold sway today in our lives, but that we would see you with clarity, that we would understand who you are and be drawn to you. Lord, thank you for what you reveal about yourself, even in this short little encounter in Mark 11. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. What makes for a good debate. I'm sure you've seen many debates, perhaps live in person or perhaps on the television. Perhaps you've even been a part of one. Ever been been a part of a debate team? 
Okay, I admire you. I don't know if I could do that. What makes for a good debate? I'm sure there's probably a lot of answers you could give to that question, but I think two things come to my mind. Number one, that the things that are being debated matter. It's important. Therefore, I have a vested interest in what they are debating about. I want to know how this is going to go. It's important to me. The second thing I think is that in the debate, it exposes the competence of the debaters and who it is that we support. And, and through this, it really clarifies a winner. Now, one thing that's often been noted is that in a debate, the winner usually becomes evident with a mere turn of phrase. Uh, for example, in 1984, this is the presidential debate, and uh, the, the opponent to then-President Ronald Reagan uh, brought up the factor of his age. And he was insinuating that, you know, you're just too old to be president anymore. And uh, when Reagan heard that, his response was, he famously replied, I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue in this campaign. I'm not going to exploit, for political reasons, my opponent's youth and inexperience. In other words, Reagan was saying, well, I wasn't going to go there. I wasn't going to make age a factor, but if you want to, well, shouldn't we talk about your youth and inexperience? And with that statement, Ronald Reagan really turned the tables of that argument and that debate. Let me ask you, does it matter to you that Jesus was able to handle his opponents? Would you still respect Jesus if his enemies got the better of him when it came to argument, when it came to putting him to question? But if you think about it this way, if Jesus lost the debates with his enemies, we'd have reason to doubt his authority. So the topic of debate here, it matters, because it's no less than the person, the identity of Jesus and what he has claimed. There is a lot at stake in this confrontation with Jesus. Now, as you see here, it is the first of many. There's going to be more rounds to debate with him. Today we're just going to look at the first one. Okay. Yeah, one thing that I thought about, that I want you to think about today, though, is that what is it a good debate for the Lord Jesus? In one sense, it, it matters that Jesus becomes the one who outshines his debaters because his claims are on the line. Does he, does he really have heaven's authority? Uh, can he withstand the tactics and the traps that these others have set for him? And the answer is yes. But there's more to this confrontation than Jesus simply being the superior debater. In fact, Jesus does not take these moments to simply outwit or outsmart them. In other words, he's not going to simply make them to be the fool. You know, sometimes our desire, sometimes we wish we could be on debate team, you know, that we could have these powers of reasoning and skill with arguments. And the reason is because we just want to defeat other people. Right? To be honest, there are some people that we would enjoy nothing better than 
putting them in their place, right? Winning the argument. But that's not Jesus' intention. So what is Jesus really after in this exchange of words? And therefore, what should you and I be after in the confrontations that we will face in our day? So let's look at round one here together, beginning in verse 27. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Okay. Now, who were these men? Well, take note, this particular group represents, you could put it this way, the heavyweight champs of the spiritual arena. Now, before, Jesus has already come toe-to-toe with leaders of the local congregations back in Galilee. Remember where he was from and did much ministry. Uh, But these guys, by comparison, okay, these are the heavy hitters. Those others were, they were small fish. But where is Jesus? He's in Jerusalem now. And this is where the highest authorities reside. This group was called the Sanhedrin. Have you heard that name before that term? Sanhedrin, okay. They were a council of 71 members, and they were the top tier when it came to religious matters. You could think of them sort of like the way the Supreme Court is the top tier when it comes to the U.S. legal system, right? That's what they are in religious matters. And they were made up of three kinds of people, or three types of leaders. You had priests, scribes, and elders, and you see that's the same three that Mark mentions there in verse 27. So what you have here is not the whole, the whole group, not 71 coming out, but a delegation from the Sanhedrin coming out to confront Jesus. Okay? You say, well, why? What happened? Well, verse 28, here's what they ask him. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And we're left to ask, well, what exactly, what things are they talking about? Okay, there's a reason they're asking Jesus this question. It has to do with what just happened in the temple the previous day. It's been a while since we looked at this, but just as a refresher, the day before, Jesus walked into the temple and looked around, and as you may recall, He overturned everything that shouldn't have been there. What was meant to be a place of worship had turned into his own words a den of robbers, right? And he pronounced judgment on them. He said, it's like the fig tree. Remember, and also that was part of this. The fig tree, like the temple, had come to have the appearance of fruit, but on closer inspection... It turned out to be nothing but leaves. And what was going on in the temple was just a lot of religious commotion and activity. But what was missing was the fruit, the worship, the prayer, the faith, forgiveness. And by the way, it was the Sanhedrin who presided over the temple operation. And therefore, it was the Sanhedrin who were benefiting and profiting from the commerce center that it had become. So they have a bone to pick with Jesus, right? 
But it was also more than what Jesus just had done the previous day. By this time in the book and in the story, Jesus has a long list of infractions. Remember this, he has forgiven sin. Something only God had the prerogative to do. He has cast aside their traditions because they had forsaken God's law and held to their traditions. He's cast these aside. And he has fellowshiped with sinful people. And the question they, they put to him really gets to all that Jesus has done so far. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? But note this, they understand that Jesus does have some authority, that he's been uniquely empowered. In fact, before they accused him of being empowered by Beelzebub, you're doing these things by Satan's power. The question they're asking is, what, what authority empowered you? Who gave you the right to do these things? Now, Jesus could have well answered and said, well, I've been authorized by God to do that, which is true, but he doesn't, and there's a reason. Okay? The real issue was not his actions that needed to be accounted for, but theirs. You say, well, what do you mean? The burden of proof is not on Jesus to explain his authority. In fact, his authority has already been proven. For example, you remember this. He tells them, but so that you know, remember he's talking to them, but so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And then he tells the paralytic, pick up your mat and walk. And he does. So that they would know that he has authority. Well, who could give them authority other than God, right? Right. The burden of proof is instead on them. The real issue is why they have not believed, even with all that they have seen and all that they have heard. So instead of answering, Jesus counters with a question of his own, right? In verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. In other words, he's saying, if, if you can face up honestly with the evidence, then we can talk. And John is a case in point. He brings up John's baptism for this very simple reason. John, like Jesus, did not have the human credentialing right? The school of rabbis, the, all that formal training to be what he was. He had no rabbi that endorsed him, but his ministry was from God and the people of Israel knew it. They regarded him, as it says here, as a prophet. But the feeling, that feeling that John was a prophet, that John was sent from God, was not mutual with these men. In fact, they did not heed John's voice and they did not participate in his baptism. They did not feel they needed to submit to his call for repentance. And this question puts them in a dilemma, doesn't it? Notice verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, then he will say, Why then did you not believe him? 
but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. You say, well, what's at stake for them in this question? By their answer, they will either be shown to be hypocritical, right? Because if they say, oh, yeah, John's baptism, that was from God, but, well, then why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you submit to his baptism of repentance? Why didn't you repent yourself? That's saying one thing, but doing another, and they know it. But if they say, from man, well, an answer would like that would cause them to lose the thing that they treasured most, which is respect and influence and power over the people. But that, that was everything for them. So say from heaven, which is the true answer, but exposes their hypocrisy, or say from man, which would, well, drop their public ratings and cause them to be disregarded, lose their power, their influence. So in the end, what do they do? Well, they come back to Jesus and they say this, we do not know. Which is, well, a lie. They have their suspicions that John and therefore Jesus have been sent by God, but they're unwilling to be honest. You say, what happened? Well, it's sad, really. Rather than being honest with themselves, they give in to the fear of losing their position, of losing their influence. You know, some folks come with all kinds of needed proofs for Jesus' claims. But the evidence is all here, isn't it? And the real question is really put back on all of us. You can know all that Jesus did through the testimony of this record. So the question is, why then do you not believe him? The burden of proof is on us. But the reason that Jesus counters them and puts them in a dilemma is so that they're confronted by their own refusal to recognize what the evidence shows, which is this, Jesus has God's authority. That perhaps, here's what Jesus wants in all this, perhaps they would come to understand who he really is. So you see, it's not a mere argument for the sake of, well, I'm going to best you and I'm going to win and I'm going to show you what a fool you are. It's to give these men pause, right, because it's a question, to give them pause to think on the evidence, right, and to, here's the chance, to be honest with themselves and to come to faith in the one who really has authority. Listen, I get it. People are going to come at us looking to outsmart us, looking to counter us, looking to disprove our faith, right? And the Bible says you should be ready to give an answer, to make a defense for the hope that's in you. But the goal is not merely to prove them wrong and to make them look foolish. As Peter writes, yes, make a defense. Be ready to make a defense for anyone who asks you. Yet, he says, do it with gentleness and respect. Or as Paul writes to Timothy, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And then he says, correcting his opponents, just what Jesus did here, but with gentleness. Why? Why does it matter how we handle confrontations? Because our goal is not to win them, it's not to win the argument, right? But it's to win them 
to Christ. As Paul says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. See, that's what Jesus was really after in his question to the Sanhedrin that day. He said, do you realize that your loyalties are with your position, they're with your influence, and you're willing to let go of the truth for that? And that's what you and I should be after in our interactions with those who are resistant to their need of Jesus, right? All right. So I'm going to pray for us today that God would help us to do so, to model ourselves like Jesus Christ in the way he interacted with others. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, I think we all know and are sometimes tempted to be on top, to have that feeling that we're right and we know it and it feels good to put someone else in their place, especially when we know they're not being honest with themselves and with the truth. But Lord, help us to take note from what Jesus did here in this situation. Not merely showing himself to be right, but putting the question back on them so that they would have another opportunity to see who you really are. And Father, I just want to pray. There may be many sitting in here this morning that have been saying, well, I need to see more proof. I need to see the proof. All the while, you're asking them, why have you not yet believed? It's all here. I've laid it out for you. It's plain to see. So Jesus, I pray that you would help each one to come with honesty about themselves, about our own hypocrisy, and our need of you, Lord, to restore and to make whole. And help us, Lord, as we go from here and meet with many different people in many different walks in their life. Give us a care and a genuine concern for their souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the Kirkoven Evangelical Free Church of Kirkoven, Minnesota. If you'd like to get in contact with us, please email us at kirk efree at gmail.com. That's K-E-R-K-E free at gmail.com.